0: ASBCC Digital fam, Mariah Keener here, the Director of Art and Worship, for those of you that might be joining us for the first time. Whether this is your first time or you've been listening from the very beginning, we just want you to know that we're so thankful that you're a part of our community and so thankful that you chose to listen with us today. We're in week two of our Everyone an Icon series. Everyone an Icon is one of our four mantras or one of our four guiding principles as a community together, and basically, it's just the idea that everyone... Everyone is deserving of dignity and respect and honor because we are all created in the image of our creator. Last week, Ryan took us through part one of that, which looks at what it looks like to love our enemies or love people that we might think differently than. He would consider this to be a two-part conversation wrapping up today, and he has a conversation with David Kramer. Now, David Kramer and Ryan get into a conversation about Christian nonviolence theory and the theology behind that, We recognize that there's a vast array of experiences and emotions that might come up when you hear that. Some of you might be very uncomfortable. Some of you might be shouting, thank you, finally, at the car radio. Wherever you're coming from today, whatever you're feeling, just know that you are a loved and cherished and seen part of this community. And we love that we have a diversity of thought and opinion that call South Bend City Church home. All right, that's enough for me. Let's join Ryan and David as we jump into week two of our Everyone an Icon series.
1: Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on the team here. It's good to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, As Mariah said, this month of June, we are in a series Uh, called Everyone an Icon, based on our mantra. Our mantras are represented over there, and the top right one is our illustration that represents everyone an icon. But if you're new to that language, icon is kind of a weird word that we don't really use outside of the church world too much, and sometimes not in the church world too much. Uh, But basically, it's a conviction that we understand that God made each and every one of us, each and every one of you, no matter who you are, no matter what your story is, no matter what you've experienced in life or the things that you've done in life, no matter what labels you've put on yourself or other people have put on you, every single human being is made in the image of God, is the core conviction that we're talking about here. We say made in the image of God. What we mean is that each of us reflects the goodness of God into the world. But beyond just this goodness, it's this idea that uh, God is in each and every one of us. And if God is in us, then there is a value there. There is a purpose there. There is a dignity there, right? And if God is in each one of us and each of us are valuable, surely that affects things on some level, right? Like surely that should have some influence on how we see ourselves, how we see other people, how we interact with the world. It should change things for us. It should make a difference for us if this is something that we really believe. And so we're looking at the ways that this shows up in the world. Today we're going to get into a little bit of practicality as we look at Christian nonviolence. And last week uh, we started diving into this a little bit, looking at Uh, Some of Dr. King's leadership in the area of Christian nonviolence and the idea that Dr. King believed that because God is in each and every one of us and each and every one of us are valuable, we cannot just seek to defeat those that are in opposition to us, but we must seek to win them over into what Dr. King calls his beloved community, right? This idea that we can win over our enemies and find peace together, is the, is the thing that, that Dr. King was leading us into. So today, it's just going to be a very practical conversation. I want to start by recognizing this may be a new conversation to some of you. And sometimes when we have these new conversations, they can feel, feel very uncomfortable uh, if they go outside the, the paradigms of culture or theology or things that we've considered before. And we here want to say it's okay. It's okay if you're feeling uncomfortable. It's okay if this brings up more questions than it does bring up answers for you. That is good to ask the question and it's good to wrestle with this together. And it's even good if we don't all come down to the same position on these things. We're just going to be okay with the messiness here. Is that okay? All right, so as we move forward, uh, our guest today to help us look at Christian nonviolence, I'm super excited to have this friend here. Well, it's one of my good friends. Uh, he is the author of the recently released book, Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence, uh, which we have for sale through Brainlayer Books. That's going to be out there. Uh, the author is David Kramer. Uh, David was born and raised here in Michigan area, went to Bethel College. Uh, that's where we were able to get close initially. Um, and then went and was able to get his Ph.D. from Baylor University before returning back to South Bend where he is a pastor of Keller Park Church um, on the northwest side and lives in Keller Park neighborhood on the northwest side of South Bend. In addition to that, David is the managing editor of the Institute of Mennonite Studies and a frequent lecturer at the Ann Baptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. You may also recognize David Kramer by his last name, as he is the husband of Andrea Kramer, Studebaker Talks alum, and the leader of the refugee welcoming nonprofit in South Bend, Neighbor to Neighbor. That's a lot. Can you welcome David Kramer to join us? <laughs> Uh, I also should mention, uh, so Keller Park Church, that uh, David is a pastor of, is a, the community that is my home before I came to South Bend City Church. Uh, a lot of the Keller Park people are here, so welcome. You all are amazing. Love you much. Also, David, that is the most Mennonite paragraph I think I've ever read. <laughs> so th- thanks for that. Any any Mennonites in the house? Any? All right. We had a lot in the first gathering. All right. There we go. Mennonites showing up. Uh, <laughs> David, tell, tell us a little bit about your church and your neighborhood community.
2: Yeah, before I do that, I just want to thank you all for inviting me here, and uh, just for the ministry you have here at South Bend City Church as a a place of, you know, grace and peace in the community, and I know being a a safe place to have difficult conversations comes at a cost. Um, You know, when you are a place that's excluded for the people you include rather than included for the people you exclude, I think that's a, a real strong witness that at Keller Park, you know, we've look to you and your leadership there. So thank you all for having me and uh, greetings from Keller Park Church. Yes, thanks. Um, So Keller Park Church, yeah, we were founded in 1968, I believe, as the Christian Community Center. Uh, It's a little um, building in the Keller Park neighborhood that initially was Barclays Grocery Store in the probably 40s and 50s, kind of the height of the Studebaker era. And then after Uh, Some of the collapse of the city after Studebaker, um, Barclay closed its doors and um, a group of people from a nearby church said, let's reclaim that space and turn it into a community center. So it was a place to get youth off the streets and get them involved in different activities and then the group that started that eventually kind of formed into its own church Initially, it was called Agape Missionary Church, which is from that New Testament word for kind of self giving love. Um, And over the time, the church evolved in different ways, including having Ryan as a pastor for about 13 years. Um, But through that evolution, now we're Keller Park Church. Um, We've joined the Mennonite Church, so that's another Mennonite Mennonite. uh, to add to your paragraph there. Um, But Through all of those changes and evolution, I think the heart of the church as a a church that's in the neighborhood and for the neighborhood, kind of our mantra is seeking the peace of our neighborhood by sharing God's love with our neighbors. And I think that's been a through line from 1968 to your time there to now um, of just being in and for the neighborhood and sharing God's love to those that we encounter
1: there. Love it. We talk a lot about neighboring here at South Bend City Church, and Keller Park Church uh, is one of the places we look for leadership in the work you guys are doing. So keep up the good work, and thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, let's turn to nonviolence. Uh, start with the basics. When we say Christian nonviolence, uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, like, pacifists avoiding the war, or is there more to this picture that's worth writing a whole book about?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I— uh... <laughs> I personally uh, do consider myself a pacifist, but I think there's ways to be involved in Christian nonviolence that doesn't require kind of taking an ideological stand on pacifism or just war or whatever. So those are interesting debates to have, and I'm happy to have those debates. But I think of Christian nonviolence, to tie it into this series, as a recognition of that core conviction that everyone is an icon. And if everyone's an icon that means the marginalized and oppressed are icons that means our enemies are icons that means people from other nations are icons and so Christian nonviolence to me means the outworking of that conviction what does it mean when we truly believe that everyone's an icon and we're called to live in light of that reality so one passage that is really foundational for me is Romans 12 where Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he says when your mind is transformed when the spirits at work in your life then you and the you there's plural talking to the whole community then you collectively will be able to test and approve what God's will is that which is good and pleasing and perfect and so I think of Christian nonviolence as a communal discernment process of people coming together and trying to test and approve what God's will is when we recognize that everyone is an icon. How do we live that out in the world? How do we work to, um, to empower those icons rather than degrading those icons? How do we work to form a world where icons can flourish and be fully who God has created us all to be rather than the violence that we see all around us?
1: So before we dive into, like, what all that exactly looks like, I want to start with your personal story. So your wife, Andrea, when she shared the Sudebaker Talks, she shared the story of being kind of like a sheltered country girl who then found her way, changed by uh, the story of refugees, uh, to where she ended up suing the BMV on behalf of refugees, right? Like this transformation story. Have you always been like this, or do you have, like, a suing the BMV story? (laughs) Well, I didn't grow up in the country, so I have a slightly different story.
2: But, um, yeah, I'm uh, maybe not as hardcore as my wife in terms of suing the BMV. That's an awesome story. But um, there were some turning points in my kind of developing consciousness around this question. And I think one of the major ones was after 9-11. So... For those of you old enough to remember that, I was a freshman in college. It was like my first week of college. And, you know, we were going to class and then heard about this horrific event happening. And I have to say, at the time, I was—I had grown up in an evangelical context, was at an evangelical college, and I was like, who are these people attacking us and how can we go hunt them down? So I was fully on board with, like, the response that the nation had initially. But I think as I was studying scripture as a biblical studies major and, you know, contemplating, I remember I was in a small group of guys where we were memorizing the Sermon on the Mount together. And it's really hard to, like, memorize the Sermon on the Mount and not be struck with Jesus' pretty clear teaching about enemy love. And so starting to think about, wait a second, these, who are my enemies And how how am I supposed to respond to them? How am I supposed to show love to them? How am I supposed to recognize the image of God in them? And that started to do a number on me. And I know you all have done a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I suspect that's doing a number on many of you. So, you know, we might be different places in our journey regarding this specific question, but I think um, that was a turning point for me of just like, wow, we are a nation at war with other icons. What do we do with that as Christians?
1: Yeah. I think of, I think of that when I think of nonviolence, right? Like what do we do in these moments of crisis and these moments of conflict, whether it's like on the brink of war or, or in personal battles, right? Whether or not we fight or whether or not we fight back. Like that's what I think of when I think of nonviolence. Is that fair that it's about these moments of conflict and crisis or is there something more behind this idea of Christian nonviolence?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the things that happens is whenever we hear Christian nonviolence or pacifism, we kind of can freeze up and think like, oh, no, someone's going to try to argue with me about some kind of political question or extreme scenario of like, what would you do in this situation? And
1: That's I'm, exactly what I plan on doing. Yeah,
2: <laughs> well, I, I'm happy to talk through those questions, but, but I think the starting point is cultivating practices in your life. Nonviolence, not as what would I do in situation X, but what do I do in my everyday life? How can I be a person that is identifying violence in the world and working to undo it, or identifying violence in my own heart and working to undo it? And so it's more of a practice of, like, virtue. Like, how do we become more loving? You have to do the small things so that when the big things
1: come your way you're the kind of person who's already doing that so like if you take the end the end result off the table you have to start proactively changing to adapt to that is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I'm getting increasingly back into the NBA. I was, uh, you know, in the 90s, I was a Bulls fan. I'm still a Bulls fan, but in the 90s, it was like the golden era for There's Bulls It was more fans. fun then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and we would go up to some games in Chicago, and you would watch, you know, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, you're just like, how are these guys doing this? Like, they're amazing. How are they hitting the last second shot? Or now it's Steph Curry. Well, they didn't just wake up that day and decide, I am going to go shoot the game-winning shot. They were in the gym day in and day out, you know, when no one's around practicing, so that when the moment comes, they were in the position to do those things. And so that's how I think of nonviolence, is like, if we're only thinking of, what would I do when an attacker comes into my house? Or what would I do in a school shooting situation? Or what would I, how would I respond to Ukraine? If you're waiting till that moment to have the question, then it's kind of like you can't even imagine other scenarios other than just responding with violence because our culture is habituating us in other ways to be formed as violent people so that we see every situation as a nail and we have this big hammer, so we're going to whack at it with the
1: hammer instead of thinking creatively as a church about other ways to intervene. Yeah, give me some practical like what are some kind of uh, collateral consequences you if you will of like the ways our culture shapes us towards violence like like what are some ways that happens and what are some of the results you see of that
2: well i mean this is maybe going to get a little political but i'll apologize in advance like i think we've been shaped as a gun culture to where we think that in order to stop a bad guy with a gun, we have to be the good guy with the gun. And so what we do is we get more and more guns to the point where now there are more guns in the U.S. than there are human beings. And what happens when we're a society that's saturated with guns, regardless of your view of the Second Amendment, all that type of thing, when we're saturated with weapons of war, it's very likely that they're going to be used more frequently than otherwise. And so this fear we have and this kind of practice we have of of responding to that fear, we think is to protect us. But the result is it's making us less protected. It's making us a more violent society. So with the shooter in Evalde, he purchased his weapons legally. He didn't have a criminal record. Like to a lot of people, that would be like, well, he's the good guy with the gun trying to stop the bad guys until he became the bad guy. So I think, yeah, as a society, we are just increasingly habituated into becoming more and more violent. And until we as a church say, no, it stops with us, we're going to think about different ways of responding that's going to keep happening.
1: Yeah, I think as, as I think about formation and its consequences, um, I, this is actually in the past couple of years for me it has struck quite personally. Um, because uh, we, we see this, like, uh, arming ourselves for the, like, once-in-a-lifetime situation that might affect us, right? Uh, and because we prepare for the once-in-a-lifetime situation, it actually has consequences in our day-to-day life. And in the last couple years, um, we've actually had just on the – within three houses of us, we've had two people have lost their life to gun violence – Uh, that my family was witnesses to. Uh, One was a a child that was shot by another child accidentally um, because the gun was available. And and the other was um, somebody who uh, had a gun in his hand and just got scared at the wrong time. Um, And out of having a gun in his hand when he got scared, ended up uh, killing my neighbor across the street. Which he wouldn't have done if he didn't have it, he didn't have any premeditated thought or or desire to to be violent in that kind of way. It just happened right, and so I see people planning for these worst case scenarios, planning uh for these violent means just out of good intentions in the worst case, and the worst case rarely happens, but these other day to day things tend to happen mm-hmm.
2: yeah, so I wouldn't come here to presume to tell you how to prepare for those scenarios, but I would just say, kind of, as for me and my house, we do not prepare in those ways. We don't have um, lethal weapons at our disposal, which means in, you know, God forbid in a scenario where there was a situation like that, we would have to think through other alternatives to responding. But what I would want to say is it's not an all or nothing uh, question. It's not like, only respond violently or don't respond at all. And I think that's a caricature of Christian nonviolence is that it's complete non-resistance of like Mm. in a situation of violence, I'm going to kind of huddle in the corner and say a prayer. Um, There are many ways to be actively engaged Mm. in undoing violence, even in the moment. Um, But again, you have to take violence off the table in order to Mm. be able to think creatively about that. We talk about violence as a last resort, but like your neighbor's story, uh, illustrates, even when we talk about it as a last resort, it becomes the first and only resort when that's what we have at our disposal. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's a really good point. From what we saw from Dr. King last week, is uh, everybody saw that it was nonviolent activism behind mm-hmm. it, right? There was this proactivity. There was a movement that happened because violence was on the table. There was other proactive measures that were being taken. So it's not about not doing anything. It's about being proactive with our nonviolent measures. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. I want to like lean into some of the practical implications that I wrestle with. First of all, the question, like I resonate, like I'm a values person. Like my values are the most important thing to me. Um, and so, like the the idea of just being virtuous, like we should be the the most virtuous people we can all the time. But the question that would come up is, does virtue matter when lives are at stake? Right? Mm-hmm. Like in the the classroom in Uvalde, for instance, uh, we can talk about what's virtuous, but like there's actual lives at stake. Doesn't doesn't virtue take a backseat to preserving the icon the iconness of those individuals?
2: Yeah. So um, to go back to the analogy, like. At some point, if you've been practicing the free throws every day, you will be called on to shoot the free throw in the game-winning scenario. And I think of virtue as preparing us to be the kinds of people that can intervene when the time comes and when we're called upon. And so um, this medieval theologian, St. Thomas Aquinas, who
1: himself was a proponent of just war theory, He still talked about how... Real quick pause. Just war theory being that there are times and ways in which war can be the moral and necessary thing you should... Exactly. So, yeah, it's kind of that
2: last resort under certain conditions type of idea. So he wasn't a pacifist, but he did say there are virtues that soldiers have, courage, um, you know, standing up for the marginalized, that type of thing. And so we can hold up those people as virtuous people, But he says what Christianity adds to it is saying the martyr is actually the paradigm of the virtues, the person who's willing not to take life but to give their life for the sake of someone else. And so, um, you know, there's like an organization called Christian Peacemaker Teams, or I think they just changed their name to Community Peacemaker Teams because there's some non-Christian people involved in in it now. But their, their mantra is we go into conflict areas and we get in the way. Um, we lay down our rights, we lay down our protection um, so that we can intervene in those situations of conflict. Now, hear me say, that has to be something that's voluntarily chosen. If you are suffering violence in your home, in some other context, that's not God's will for you. You're an icon as well. You need to remove yourself from that situation. But there are others who say we are willingly choosing to put our lives on the line for the sake of other icons Uh, there was a um, a guy named uh, michael sharp mj sharp who was doing that very work and lost his life and became kind of a modern day martyr Hmm. Um, he was in his early 20s i think Um, but he was following the way of Jesus, trying to intervene in a situation of conflict, and ended up losing his life as a result. So, there are stories of like heroes
1: doing this work. Um, it's not just people kind of cowering in the corner. All right, let me throw another one at you. Um, this is what would be called utilitarian thinking, which is just basically pragmatics of it, right? Like a math equation. I get that it's good to. Preserve life and the iconness that's involved in there, but wouldn't it be better to sacrifice one icon to save fifty icons?
2: Yeah, so that kind of logic to me is um, kind of anti-Christian. <laughs> no offense to the question, um, but you know Jesus offense taken. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you're literally playing devil's advocate at the moment. So, um, but uh, you know Jesus gives this parable of leaving the 99 to go save the one. That's like completely anti-utilitarian thinking. Um, You know, there's a a Jewish uh, proverb about how um, when you take a life, you are destroying an entire world. And so I think we have to be people as Christians who say we are never going to be world destroyers. We are never going to be life takers But having said that, again, it's not an either-or. Like, there are ways that you can intervene. Even in a situation like Uvalde, those, you know, police were trained to view the situation as a nail that needed a hammer, and they froze up for 70 minutes. They didn't do anything. What if they had been trained differently to intervene in a situation of violence nonviolently? Would they have waited... Or would they have maybe stepped in and actually saved some lives? So even on that utilitarian calculus, I'm not sure that violence is always the better
1: route than nonviolence. I like to consider myself a Christian nonviolence advocate. (laughs) At the same time, uh, I like that our good friend Eon is parked out front, um, and he's a police officer in Elkhart and uh, tries to have presence in the community to... uh, to keep violence down and avoid violence. Is there room in any of these um, in any of these nonviolence traditions, is there room for UN peacekeepers or police force, obviously, like uh, when not uh, taken to some of the, the ends that we've seen lately? Yeah, so the goal of today isn't really to plug the book, but
2: I'll take a second to do that. Um, in the book, we describe, my co-author and I describe eight different approaches to nonviolence, and so as we talk about nonviolence as a communal discernment process, people answer kind of the practical questions differently. So there's that bedrock conviction that everyone's an icon and that it's our job as Christians to help those icons fully thrive. But when it comes to how we do that, there's plenty of debate among advocates of Christian nonviolence. And one of those questions is specifically on the role of policing. And, um one of the approaches that we call realist nonviolence would say if we're looking to eliminate war or reduce war and other kinds of violence, maybe a policing paradigm is a way to do that because they at least have certain codes that they follow to try to reduce a situation of violence rather than um, increasing it. Now, other approaches would say, so we have another chapter on liberationist nonviolence, and I think they would say, well, actually policing is a part of a larger system that can be very violent on marginalized communities. So it's not about any one police officer. Again, like Aquinas talked about, a soldier or a police officer could be a paradigm of heroism, but it's about a, a wider system that can lead to violence. And so, you know, we hear the, the defund police kind of uh, thing out there, and when I hear that, I think of... Are there ways that we can be funding other ways to engage um, situations of conflict so I am a part of an organization called Faith in Indiana where we're trying to find funding for like a mental health crisis response system so when you come across a situation where there's a mental health crisis instead of immediately calling 911 and having police show up who aren't often trained to respond to that, you call a different three-digit number and have a mental health crisis team respond and as we've been doing that work like uh the sheriff sheriff redmond is like fully supportive of that because for him he doesn't want police to be responding to those situations he wants mental health responders to do that so it's not necessarily an either or but there are different approaches that would take different Answers to that question. That's my cop out to oh, not thanks.
1: have to answer it myself. But. Good good dodge, <laughs> yeah. good dodge. No. Uh, what I, this whole conversation, like anytime the word violence comes up, my brain goes to physical violence, right? Like I'm thinking about actual physical violence. Um, but people have started to track other kinds of violence. Dr. King talked a lot about economic violence, for instance. Uh, can you tell me more about, like, kind of a, a, a broader picture of how we understand violence?
2: Yeah, so as I was talking about uh, turning points in my own thinking about violence, 9-11 was a big turning point. But another one was when I was studying at Baylor, um, a story came out about one of my intellectual heroes, a Mennonite theologian who was one of the major advocates of nonviolence in the 20th century. And then um, late in his life, stories came out about his own involvement in sexualized violence towards other colleagues, even students. And so that was a huge, just devastating um, realization for me, is that just being committed to pacifism or nonviolence doesn't make you a nonviolent person. There are so many other ways that our lives are so enmeshed in violence. And so recognizing, like, you and I, I think, come from relatively affluent, you know, communities... And so for us, we think of violence as a break from the norm. The norm is order and peace, and violence is when that is broken by kind of an act of bloodshed. For many other communities out there, violence is the norm. Violence is pervasive, part of really the harm that we're doing as affluent societies of extracting resources, of economic oppression, and it's not like that's metaphorical violence, you know, where it's like, well, real violence is bloodshed and economic violence is like extracting from that kind of an analogical form of violence. It really does lead to the loss of life. It it leads to, um, you know, disparities of even like life expectancy in various Communities here in the U.S. and around the world. So, yeah, it makes yeah. me
1: think of uh, many of you may have heard of this concept called redlining, um, that was taking place where uh, banks were drawing uh, boundaries around neighborhoods that they were willing to loan to or not loan to. Uh, Pride primarily influenced based on whether there were people of color living in the neighborhood would make it hard to get a loan there. Uh, the result of that uh, is that it was easier to build wealth um, in community, uh, white communities than it was for people of color to build wealth as far as getting loans for their house, uh, getting buying and selling their house, uh, seeing the property values increase, uh, and then generational wealth, wealth generation upon generation every time a house is sold and, and all that um, – that led to more poverty among neighborhoods of color and more poverty, again, decreases lifespan, has all these other health consequences and all these other things, right? That is a topic that you see, I can understand using the word violence there, right? Like these banks were acting violently towards these families and towards these communities. Uh, Is is there any other things like that that you are noticing? Yeah, so I
2: think what you're speaking to there is um, a really great observation about how nonviolence is not, Kind of a discrete topic. It's not like we have nonviolence over here, racism over here, um, homophobia and transphobia over here, uh, misogyny over here. These questions all kind of intersect in all kinds of different ways. And so, nonviolence and or violence and racism go hand in hand. Violence and patriarchy go hand in hand. Like. You know, if anyone's following the Southern Baptist Convention, not to call out another denomination, but, like, you know, there's this report of just, like, 700 cases of sexualized violence among ministers. Just horrific stuff. Um, So addressing gender and addressing um, misogyny and addressing patriarchy is a way of practicing nonviolence
1: so if these are in the systems that we're just a part of right it may not be something i'm doing personally myself i'm not i'm not acting in these ways upon my neighbors but i'm a part of a system perhaps how how can we become aware of that and stop participating in that or or work against these systems even i think the first thing to do
2: and the second and third thing to do is to be listening to voices on the margins, be listening to those communities who are saying, we are feeling the oppression, we are feeling the harm being done to us. When someone comes to you and says, ouch, you're hurting me, like the, th- the normal human thing to do is to say, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, what can I do to stop doing that? But when it when it's systemic things, we say, like, really? Are you sure? Is that actual violence? Um, so why do we do that? I think there's a defensiveness there. So let me tell a quick story. So our church, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think recently joined the Mennonite church denomination, and Mennonites, you may know, kind of pride themselves on being nonviolent people. And uh, I was recently at a convention where a delegation of LGBTQ Mennonites put forward a resolution saying basically, ouch, you're hurting us. Your policies and practices are a form of violence toward our community. And for Mennonites, it was like, wait, we're the ones that undo violence. We're not the ones that do violence. And this community within the larger community was like, no, you're doing violence. And so the resolution was called a resolution for repentance and transformation. And um, for those of you kind of New Testament nerds, or maybe you've talked about this at church before, but repentance in the New Testament is that word metanoia, which is not just like, sorry, it's I'm going one direction, I have a realization that that's the wrong direction, and I turn around and go in another direction. In the New Testament, that happens through an encounter with Jesus or an encounter with the Holy Spirit. In our day, I think that encounter is often mediated by an encounter with the Jesus in front of us who could be a marginalized person. And when we hear Jesus speaking to us through them, that causes repentance and transformation. So I would say that's the first, second, and third step is have your ear to the ground, be seeking out those voices that are
1: speaking to us loudly and clearly if we're willing to listen. Yeah, thanks. Uh, We're getting near the end of our time here, but I want to open the floor to you because you possibly are sitting there with all sorts of questions stirring in you. Uh, So we're going to have time to take a couple questions here, um, and we'll try and give... Uh, concise responses uh, to to your questions um, as we move on here. So feel free, to just throw up a hand, and uh, I will repeat your question because our podcast uh, family members will be listening, and they won't be able to hear unless I repeat you. So uh, anybody want to start us off? Anybody have a question? Help me see these hands too. Bonus points to whoever asks a question. For there we go. All right, bonus points to you. How do you begin to start the conversation with somebody who m- may just be in the initial process of of recognizing or realizing that, that they maybe are participating in violence they didn't previously see? Is that it? Yes. Okay. That's a great question. Um, I think
2: uh, being confessional with your own participation in violence can be kind of a disarming approach. And so... You know, we were talking about racism earlier. If you just go up to someone and say, like, bro, you're racist, (laughs) that's probably not going to be a good way to start the conversation. But if you say, like, you know, I'm just, I've been learning, and I'm recognizing ways my own life is, you know, enmeshed in forms of racism, that might be kind of a disarming way for them to be able to see that as well. And so I would say the same thing with nonviolence is, like, As you identify ways, and I hate to break it to you, but we are all involved in systems of violence and oppression. Like, as people living in the U.S., it's just unavoidable. So as we identify those things and have conversations with others who are just beginning to maybe start to recognize even if maybe with some resistance to that recognition. I think coming alongside on that journey rather than like a confrontation or a call-out is probably the best way to start that conversation.
1: Good question. Anybody else? Right How do we become advocates for nonviolence while not being, like, f- furthering it ourselves or being, like, coercive ourselves? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. We're not standing up for those in the minority hmm. and, and not further perpetuating oppression. Yeah, standing up for those on the margins without further perpetuating oppression.
2: Yeah. Um, we're going to make mistakes, and I think repentance is an ongoing process. And so you might say I'm going to be an ally in this situation and you try to follow the lead of the the person or the people who are um, expressing the pain and then as we all do you mess up <laughs> and you just have to be willing to move on and try to continue to hear those voices and so I've had moments where you know I'm given a sermon on some justice topic and I'm like yeah I'm on board with this I'm leading the charge here and then I'll get a text from a friend at church who's like you know that language you used was a little offensive and I'm like Mm. okay all right, I'm not fully there yet and so I don't do that the next time and so I think it's yeah it's because we are from a Position of power, oftentimes when we try to intervene, we're going to misuse that power. And we have the whole history of colonialism around the world where sometimes that's been in the guise of benevolence, but it's still led to a lot of further harm. And so I think as Christians, we need to again repent of that. Like, Um, At the seminary where I spend part of my time, we've done a lot of work on dismantling the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery was this idea that wherever Christians go around the world, Western Christians, like they can claim that land as the land that God has given them, and then indigenous communities are, you know, harmed, and um, a lot of violence is done as a part of that. So at times, our like, excitement about being out there in the world sending out missionaries or whatever causes so much harm and we need to repent of that and try to do better
1: (laughs) as we hear from those voices yeah thanks I'm actually going to steal the third practical question for myself because I have the microphone and I can do that (laughs) sorry everybody violence Violence, yes (laughs) (laughs) I repent of my violence um Dave, my, my grandpa is 97 years old, and he uh, was in World War Two, and a tail gunner of a B-17, and he did that because that was what was asked of him, and he did it out of intentions to be kind and loving, and he saw a lot of his friends die as a result of it. How can we have these conversations about nonviolence um, and still what, recognize the, the sacrifices that have been made and the good intentions that, that have been out there? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. We have veterans at our church as well, some that you probably remember um, who wear their Vietnam hat to church. And I would never want to do something that, um, that denigrates them as individuals. I've also found that a lot of times veterans are the ones who recognize the harm that's been caused more than anyone else because they were there literally on the front lines. And so I think we can talk about these questions kind of in systemic ways to say the US has perpetuated a lot of violence around the world without having to alienate individuals who were just trying to do the best that they could with the, you know, the. The knowledge they had at the time or sometimes they didn't even have a choice if they were drafted into it. Um, so yeah, I think we can honor their, their service, their bravery, their courage um, while still talking about ways that systemically harm has been caused.
1: Thanks. Uh, last question. We talk about nonviolence as this thing that shapes us, right? This is kind of discipline that makes us into the kind of person that's able to, like, act more virtuously in the world. What is one practical way we can start moving forward uh, in nonviolence in our daily lives? Um, I'll give you a few if I have time. <laughs> Few's fine.
2: <laughs> All right. So, um, when it comes to just learning more, like there's a lot of opportunities out there. The Croc Institute here in uh, South Bend at Notre Dame, AMBS, where I teach part time. Uh, we offer short courses where it's just non-credit, like a six-week uh, online um, course where you can learn more about peace and justice in scripture, or other topics. Um, So there's a lot of learning opportunities. There's also a lot of opportunities to just roll up your sleeves and get involved. Uh, I mentioned Faith in Indiana before. Um, That's a great community of faith leaders and others who are working to reduce violence here in the community. We've talked about uh, Andrea's organization, Neighbor to Neighbor, which is um, coming alongside people who have fled violence around the world and saying, how can we support you now that you're here? Um, so there's organizations like instead of thinking of nonviolence as I have to stop doing everything I'm doing, and you just kind of cower in the corner and become paralyzed. How can you look at ways to actively be involved to reduce violence? And once you start doing that, you'll you'll find opportunities around every corner. Um, even within the church, I would say, you know, instead of starting maybe with War and working your way backwards, start with the forms of violence that people in your community are experiencing. So, sexualized and gender based violence is pervasive. And I think addressing that and then seeing the connections between that and other forms of violence would be a great place for you all to start or to continue the work as a church. Thanks.
1: Guys, can we thank David? Uh, one of the things I, I've really grown to appreciate, and I don't think we, I didn't previously recognize this, is South Bend, where we're located, is kind of a hub for peacemaking and nonviolence. Uh, we have the Catholic social tradition of peacemaking, uh, and you have, so you have the Kroc Institute at Notre Dame uh, that does a lot of work in peacemaking and nonviolence, and then also being as close to a hub of the Mennonite community with AMBS Seminary that's over in Elkhart, there is a lot of voices, if you're interested in connecting more with these voices, i I encourage you to talk to David about that, and he can uh, get you connected into a lot of the other work that's going on in our area here. But Dave, thanks so much. Uh, If I could have you guys stand as we leave this morning. I don't know how you're feeling after something like that. Uh, You could be feeling great and inspired. You could be feeling all kinds of awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, And I just want to recognize that there's rooms for all of those things. And if you want to keep talking, I'd love to keep having this conversation with you all. Uh, As you go this week, My prayer for you is this, that as you go, may you know that you are created in the image of God, that God sees you, knows you, and loves you for exactly who you are, not for who you hope to be or who others might hope you be. And that as God sees you and knows you and loves you and walks with you, may you see the image of God in yourself and may you see the image of God in others. And may we be people that don't just go out to try to live like Jesus, but may we be people that seek to walk in the way of Jesus. Grace and peace be with you. Have a great week.